Well, amen. Thank you for joining us for worship and experiencing God's grace. And there's a lot of ways in which we celebrate God's grace today. Today is Memorial Day, where we remember those who died and gave their life for our freedom. And also it's Pentecost Sunday. And Pentecost is a reminder that it was 50 days after the Passover, lamb died in your place. It was on Pentecost that Moses brought down the law for the people. And so Pentecost is a reminder that God provides for us that which we most need, that we can't reach, he brings it down on high. And then the New Testament, because the law couldn't fulfill or fix the problem of our, our sin problem, 50 days after Jesus died at Passover, God sent what we most needed down from on high, which was the Holy Spirit. So we thank God for those who died for us to have our freedom. We thank you for the Passover lamb and for Jesus who died for ultimate freedom. And now God provides what we need, which is his spirit and his law to live in and through us. And that's what we need. And we got that not by merit, but through grace. So this morning as we continue in the reflection of that grace, we're going to see that, uh, again, the human heart, like all these kings, just continue to steer in the wrong direction. And today's going to be a particularly, I think, convicting message because it's something that we all deal with but rarely hear talked about. Let me give you the main characters because I think sometimes in, in all these kings' names you can lose the forest for the trees. So I've been using these different chess pieces. So you only need to keep track of really a few characters. So remember, the kingdom's been divided in half. The southern kingdom's called Judah. The northern portion is called Israel. The king of the north is a guy right here named Jehoash. Jehoash. And I've added... A sign so you guys can see it here because the angle's bad. So Jehoash, but he's going to be replaced by Jeroboam. So from the north, we're only going to talk today, for the most part, a reference point of Jehoash, but then we're going to talk a little bit about Jeroboam. And as you can see, Jeroboam's got some eyeballs, right? Because we're going to find today that he's got the same problem. He sees everything through these big eyeballs that the king of the south has. We'll talk about that in a moment. The king of the south, you only have to keep track of two names, but they're almost identical. Amaziah, who's followed by his son, Azariah, A-M or A-Z. So if you want to remember the Am guy and the Az guy. So we're going to talk about Amaziah, and then we're going to talk about Azariah. Also, they got a problem. All the kings we talk about today, their ego becomes their eyes. They see everything through the lens of their own ego, their own reference point. And here's the thing about the ego. And the ego says, it's not about being confident. You can be humble and be confident. <clears throat> ego is really that thing that says, I have to be right. I know I'm right. I don't consider how I might be wrong in an argument with an employee, with my kids. I've never apologized to my children. It's hard for me to apologize. That's what ego sounds like. Ego is when you are in a, in a, in a dialogue with your spouse and you say something like this, I know what you meant by that. No, you don't. You, you can know what you heard. You can know what you interpreted. No, no, I know what you meant. No, no, no. unless you're sovereign uh, God on high, you cannot know what somebody meant. And so I say, well, here's what I meant to say. Well, no, it's not, I saw. So often when we presume to know what other people meant rather than clarifying, it's ego. Other times I hear people say, well, you know, I just got a really big ego. Right, well, we should probably fix that and not, not brag about it, right? <laughs> that's, like, that's not something to brag about. That's like a weakness to work on. There's different ways in which ego shows up. I was talking to a guy at our church. Um, he said for, for years his wife and kids talked about his anger problem. 
He just said they're oversensitive or she was too soft on the kids. And he said, I didn't humble myself to hear the feedback. And so I got humbled by some pretty hard circumstances, unrelated. And I started being more open to feedback. And I started realizing that for years, my wife had kind of given up on my ability to hear the feedback because I just shut her down. But when God humbled me, I was able to start seeing that I had an anger problem and I need to deal with it. Another guy walked in my office several years ago, and he began to tell me all the things we should be doing as a church. And mostly all the things we were doing wrong. Again, I don't mind learning from people who have a bad attitude. I don't even mind learning from people who don't have the best intentions. I love to learn. So I'm listening. I'm like, well, that's a good idea. That's interesting. So what made you come to that conclusion? So he gets it done, but in general, he was right about everything. It was pretty amazing. I said, what's the probability that you're right about everything? He said, hi. I said, wow. Yeah. <laughs> As so I was taking some notes, there were a few good things to pick up in the midst of the, the, the uh, you know, total uh, arrogant attitude he had. I said, you mind if I ask you a question? He said, sure. He loves it when people ask questions. I said, do you ever get feedback like from your, your wife, your kids, that maybe you're not real open-minded, not real teachable? And it was amazing. He goes, actually, all the time. <laughs> he just didn't see any connection between this conversation and that conversation. I said, well, you know, it's just something you might want to work on. Just totally oblivious to it. We had a guy who came to our hearth room uh, several months ago, and he was talking to one of our elders, and he and his wife were there, and he said, man, I've so enjoyed being around the Bible study and, and, and being in a small group. Just being around God's word is transforming me. And our elder turned to uh, his wife and said, well, what ways have you seen your husband change over the last couple months? She said, well, honestly, it's been amazing. I think if I had to summarize it, it's, it's no longer all about him. It's moving from ego to selflessness and service. So today we're going to look at three kings. And what we're going to find is that when our ego becomes our eyes, something amazing happens. We see shackles, things that hold us back, things that are weaknesses, things that are problems. We start seeing shackles as keys. i got a big ego. Well, yeah, that's a problem. It's going to set you up for destruction. No, no, no. That's the key to my success. When your ego becomes your eyes, you see shackles as keys. And we're going to look at three kings who had Exactly that. They had their, their egos as their eyes. So the first one we're talking about is, is Amaziah. So Amaziah, the king of the south, he is going to be going face-to-face -face with his enemy to the south, the Edomites. And we're going to find that when he goes and battles the Edomites, we just see the symptoms of his ego. So what we find here in Amaziah is that when our ego becomes our eyes, our failed enslaver, we start seeing as our victorious rescuer. The thing that has failed us and will enslave us, we start thinking is a thing that is going to bring us victory. So let me jump to the punchline, then we'll tell the whole story. So he's just defeated the Edomites. Their gods could not protect them. Their gods were false gods. So having defeated them, what does he do? He starts worshiping their gods. Does that sound very smart? The same gods who just failed them. Here's what happens. Verse 14, then we'll jump back to verse 1. So after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites... He brought back the gods of the people of Seir, and he set them up to be his gods. And he bowed down before them and burned incense to them. The failed gods you've set up as your victorious rescuer now. Hmm. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was roused against him. I delivered you from the people, and now you're worshiping their gods? He sent them a prophet. So a prophet comes to Amaziah. is like, oh, yeah, Amaziah says, does this make any sense? And the prophet said to him, why have you sought the gods of the people who could not rescue their own people from your hand? 
Hallel McFly, does this make any sense at all? So imagine you come over to Edom and they're bowing down to pottery, right? So here's, here's the, the pottery gods of the Edomites. And they don't, amazingly, these potteries don't do real, real well in battle. So they did not provide Edom for victory. But you're like, man, that's some good looking pottery. You know what? I should worship that. So you bring back the pottery and you start worshiping it. Well, when your ego becomes your eyes, you do all kinds of crazy things. So let me bring you back to the beginning of the chapter. How does he get here? All right. Step one. When your ego begins to drive you, begin to see things through things, you, you see comfort. My comfort becomes the success point. If I can be comfortable, that must be God's will. That must be what's right. God wants me to be happy. How many times have I heard that? A couple's about to go through a divorce. God would want me to be happy rather than trying to endure and work on your own selfishness. So in the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, reference point to the guy in the north, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, is the king of Judah. He became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehanadan of Jerusalem. And he did what was right. Holy cows! A king that did something right after all these weeks. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Finally one of them. Um, yet. <laughs> it was always a yet. Yet, not like his father David, but still pretty good. He did everything as his father Joash had done. However, oh, there's always a yet and a however. However, the high places were not taken away. Those were those other gods, the gods of comfort, the fertility gods of Baal. They were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now, the reason this was more comfortable is it was just, you could either go all the way to Jerusalem to worship, or you could maybe, let's just find the tall mountain and let's worship God on our terms. So it was easier to worship God in your terms. He said, hey, it's more comfortable not to go all the way down to Jerusalem. Let's just do it here. God requires a whole bunch of rigmarole. Read the book of Leviticus. It's kind of overwhelming. Let's just go up and bow down to our pottery or our big stick as we saw last week. This is what happens. We just, it was real subtly begin to say, hey, God's here for my comfort. And if God's not providing my comfort, I'll find some other version of God or spirituality that will provide my comfort. And it's really ego because it's saying, I know better than God how to worship him. I know better than God what should be most valuable in my life. So here's another example of some archaeologists have found. So sometimes it wasn't just pottery in their high places. Literally, they would just take a big stone. It almost looks like the Ten Commandments stone. It was called a standing stone. And they would literally bow down to a standing stone to represent whoever God was. That is the God that's going to bring me comfort. And we all do it in different ways. So number two, ego has this ability to stare at what you do right in order to deflect what you've done wrong. So somebody brings up an issue in your life, something you do wrong, you're like, no, 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 I'm a good person. Okay, well, yeah, you might be a good person, but you still did that wrong. No, 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 I'm a good person. You, you so stare at what you do right so you can deflect on, not have to address what you've done wrong. And so we just learned that he's, he's bowing down to a bunch, of, a bunch of standing stones. But man, if you asked him, he'd say he's a good king, and here's why. Now it happened, as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand, that he executed the servants who'd murdered his father. So that sounds like government getting rid of evildoers. They had murdered somebody, unjust killing. He, he's doing justice. But the children of the murderers he did not execute because God said in the book of, uh, of Moses, it is written in the book of the law of Moses, that kids are not responsible for what their parents do. 
in which the Lord commanded, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. But a person shall be put to death for their own sin, only if they're guilty of it. So he killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, and he took Selah by war and called its name Jokthiel to this day. So if you said to him, hey, shouldn't we work on this bowing down to the pottery thing? Or shouldn't we bow, kind of address this problem you have of, of not worshiping God the way he wanted? He would say, no, 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 I follow God's commandment. I killed off the murders, but I didn't kill off the kids. What a righteous man I am. He's so staring at what he's done right, he's not willing to look at what he's done wrong. Boy, don't we all do that. We justify our actions by focusing on the things we're doing right, refusing to admit what we've done wrong. So what is this place, Jokiel? So let me show you. Jokiel is really interesting here in the Valley of Salt as he attacks the Edomites. Let me take you on a map and show you. So we're on the south side of the Dead Sea. So that's the Dead Sea. We're at the very bottom of that. There's the Valley of Salt. Here's what it looks like. It's a giant desert at the bottom of the Dead Sea. And so he's in Judah. He's coming around here for this attack. So this is what it would look like. So now he's up here in Judah. He's come around here where he's going to have this attack on the Edomites. So the Edomites were over in this section, but they really controlled this whole area. And so he's making his way down here. And the reason he wants to conquer this area is because if he can conquer the south, he has control of the trading routes between Africa and Asia. So it's a really big deal for him to have control over this. So he takes by war and calls it Jokthiel. Again, you see a little ego in what he calls the place. The word Jokthiel means God subdued because of my obedience. Like some of the other days, say, Chad, I really appreciate you as a leader because you're so humble. I said, man, you should see my humility trophy in my office. It's amazing. My humility trophy just says, Chad, it blinks lights. It says the most humble man in the universe. It's amazing. So come see my humility trophy sometime. See, he literally calls this thing Jokiel, which means God subdued because I obeyed. And you just see the hints of this ego problem. So think of this section right here I've circled. We're going to zoom in on that. This is where this battle occurs between Amaziah and the Edomites. And you can see it's a real tight squeeze which allowed him to conquer the Edomites. So <laughs> imagine battling on this terrain. I mean, that's some difficult terrain to battle on. He's coming from top down. Edomites are coming from bottom up, so he's in a better position. Well, believe it or not, there's a path in all that. So the only way up is to follow this path here, here, and around up here. So that's the path the Edomites have to come up. So it's easy to take them out one at a time. So sure enough, here's the path again. You'd go around here, around here, and up here in Jokthiel. So meanwhile, Amaziah, his army's coming from the top. So as they're making their way up, he's coming down, and sure enough, he kills 10,000 of them. Now, later on, there'll be a prophet named Obadiah. You don't hear a lot of sermons, but Obadiah. But Obadiah is really about one thing. Obadiah, Obad-Edom. It's about Edom, same people that Amaziah just conquered. And he says their biggest problem in the Edomites is that they were arrogant. They thought because they lived in the rocks. Have you ever seen the Petra Fortress in the rock? That's right here. That, that comes from this area. And here's what, here's what uh, Obadiah says about the Edomites. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You dwell in the clefts of the rock whose habitation is high. So you say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? And there is the voice of ego right there. And God warns the Edomites through Obadiah, but they don't listen. And you're going to find Amaziah, after defeating them, he gets equally elevated and doesn't listen. So the story continues. And this is probably the biggest problem with ego, is that ego blinds you from hearing feedback. From your kids, 
from your parents, from your boss, from your employees, from people who want to say something that's not consistent with where you want to go. Ego blinds us from hearing feedback. So God sends a prophet who said to him, what are you doing bowing down, bowing down to the, 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 the pottery? So we have feedback coming. God sent a prophet to bring feedback to Amaziah. Why have you sought the gods of the people who could not even rescue their own people from your hand? That's a good question, isn't it? That's good feedback. That's, that doesn't make any sense what we're doing. This doesn't make sense what you're doing. Do you think he can hear the feedback? No, because his ego is his eyes. I always make good decisions. We needed some potty around here. Yahweh doesn't have an image. We need an image. Those, those gods kind of look cool. This is going to help people worship. He knows better than God. So it was that as he talked to him, the king said to him, Have we made you the king's counselor? Who put this guy in charge? Who let him in here? Cease. Let's shut down the feedback. That guy's not got the right position. He's got the wrong attitude. You're too sensitive. You don't know what you mean. Why should you be killed? <laughs> Maybe we should just kill you off for this kind of feedback. Then the prophet ceased. All right. Okay, not going to take the feedback. But his last words were, um, but I know that God is determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not heeded my advice. <laughs> you got to love that last line. Listen, you can do whatever you want. I'm going to shut up now, but I know now because you didn't listen to me that you know, God's going to you know, destroy you. Um, see you later. <laughs> How to win friends and influence people. But he wouldn't hear feedback. But this is true for all of us. So don't shake your finger at Amaziah. It's true of you. It's true of me. I was reading a book several years ago, and it's called uh, Why Great Leaders Don't Take Yes for an Answer. It's a fascinating book because it kind of does a case study on how often what happens. Oh, i got a magnet in there. I don't want to do that. Um, what happens often is that we, the higher you get up in an organization, the less you have access to real data. And the more and more people have a tendency to tell you what you want to hear. And so part of being a good leader is actually purposely assigning people in meetings to be the devil's advocate, to argue against your proposal, look for potential problems with the proposal, to purposely encourage differing opinions done in a healthy way. And they give lots of examples of when great leaders only take yes for an answer, it leads to destruction because they don't get good feedback or good data. A classic example in the book is the story of the, the NASA Challenger. Takes off, everybody watching. I was in elementary school watching on TV, one little TV in the gymnasium, 73 seconds up in the air. The teacher was up there with the NASA astronauts, McAuliffe, and the whole thing blew up on national television. How could we not see that? How could our best scientists not? Well, lots and lots of engineers had said, there's a huge problem. We're really concerned. One guy was so concerned months early, he wrote a whole two-page documentation of exactly the problems he found with the, the O-rings on that, uh, that booster. But somehow that feedback had not made it through middle management to get to decision makers, and people lost their life. And the whole NASA program uh, you know, got totally detoured for three years because people weren't able to get access to feedback. It's going to slow us down. We got a plan. We got an agenda. Yeah, what if that agenda costs life? Ego, when, when your ego becomes your eyes, you're not open to the feedback of your spouse, of your kids. Kids just need to obey me. Well, maybe they got some things to observe about you you might want to hear or that you need to hear. Ah, oh, cease. I'm the dad here. Cease. I'm the parent here. Okay, well, then you're not going to get access to feedback. I tell you who knows your weaknesses better than anyone? Your kids. 
<laughs> they know our weaknesses, don't they? And yet we don't hear it. And we're not humble enough to take the feedback. Which ultimately leads to our own destruction. So, ego blinds us to our own destruction. The same thing happens here to Amaziah. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, the king of Israel. And he says, come, let us face one another in battle. I just defeated the Edomites. I'm going to defeat you. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, let me tell you a story. There once was a little thistle that was in Lebanon. And he sent to a giant cedar that was in Lebanon. And he said, could you give me your daughter as to my wife, to my son as a wife? That's his reply to this battle. What a weird response. He's going to explain in a second. He says, listen, my battlement, my armament, we are a cedar tree. You are nothing. Your army is nothing. You have so inflated your strengths, so denied your weaknesses. You think a battle against the Edomites to a thin little straw uh, of Jothiel is going to set you up to defeat my army? You're a fool. You think you're a cedar and you're nothing more than a thistle. Now, that would be hard to hear, but actually it's accurate. And he doesn't hear it, which sets him up for his own destruction. You have indeed defeated Edom, but your heart has lifted you up. You, your pride, your ego, you have disproportionately seen your strengths and disproportionately ignored your weaknesses. Glory in that. Hey, enjoy the fact that you won one battle, but stay at home, my friend. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not heed because ego sets up its own destruction. Therefore, Jehoash, king of Israel, went out. So did Amaziah, the king of Judah, and they faced one another at battle at Beth Shemesh, which belonged to Judah. And Judah was soundly defeated by Israel. And every man fled to his tent. It didn't just affect the king. It affected everybody. Ego not only hurts us, it hurts the people we love. And Jehoash captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Amaziah, at Beth Shemesh. He went to Jerusalem. He broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 100 cubits, and he took all the gold and the silver. It cost him personally. It cost him his freedom. It cost him his country. It hurt other people. It cost him his money. All the articles which were found in the house of the Lord and the treasury of the king's house and hostages were taken and they returned to Samaria. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash, which he did, his might and how he fought with Amaziah, the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoash rested with his fathers and was buried with the kings of Israel. So Jehoash was the king here who just defeated Amaziah and he's going to be Followed up now. He's just died. He just defeated Amaziah because Amaziah didn't take the warning. He's now going to be followed up by Jeroboam. Reminds me of the story of the DeLorean. You remember the DeLorean from, uh, from Back to the Future? 1.21 gigawatts! A bolt of lightning! So, <coughs> that's Back to the Future if you don't know that. So, okay. Doc Brown. <coughs> Sorry. I've got to work on my impersonations. Um, well, the, the, the DeLorean was named after John DeLorean, who's known as a maverick. He worked for General Motors, really saw himself as a maverick, did amazing things. But he went to invent the, M, the DMC-12, and it was costing a lot more than original kind of plans entailed. People were warning him. He was a maverick. You know, people told me no before. We're going to make it. And when you're a maverick, I'm a bit of a maverick, you always push against conventional wisdom because it often slows you down. But sometimes it's conventional reason for a reason, Right? 
Some people got some scars at itch. We kept pushing against the, the warnings of the cost. And then the sales department was saying, it's hard to sell this thing. There's like five design flaws that are hard, making this hard to sell. No, 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 no. It'll work. It'll work. It'll work. By the time that thing came out, they didn't sell enough of the DMC-12 to even pay for it. And they end up in bankruptcy. His ego, his mission, his ambition, he saw everything through that and therefore set up his own destruction. I don't want that for you or for me. So we move to our second king, and our second king is Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam is a real simple story here. When our ego becomes our eyes, you chase the cow, but you don't see the manure. And he's chasing the cow. And the ego has you chasing some cow, but you don't see the manure. Watch what happens. So quick reminder, Jeroboam's name has been used multiple times through this book. And it's always like Jeroboam I led Israel astray. 2 Kings 3, Jeroboam led people astray. 2 Kings 9, Jeroboam led people astray. 2 Kings 10, did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. 2 Kings 10, 31, did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. So this has been a pattern through the whole book. The original Jeroboam led us all astray. So somebody names their son after that guy. Jeroboam II. <laughs> Again, keeps going. Chapter 13, chapter 13, sins of Jeroboam, sins of Jeroboam, sins of Jeroboam. This is a real problem. So then Jeroboam II, his son, reigned in his place. Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah are not written in the book. So now we've just moved on to Azariah, to the south, and Jehoram to the north. All right. Uh, da, da, da. Verse 20, and they brought him on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem, and his father's in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elthiath and restored it to Judah, and the king rested with his fathers. Now in the 15th year of Amaziah, uh, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. Oh, big day. He reigned for 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Oh, there it is again. Surprise. He did not depart from the sins of his namesake, Jeroboam. Shocker. The son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah. So he does some amazing things. Politically, he really grows the place, but spiritually, he leads them into muck. According to the word of the Lord of Israel whom it's spoken of through his servant Jonah. So note the prophet Jonah in the book of Jonah is the one other time he's mentioned. Just as God's going to use you to bless and increase the territory, but you're not doing it God's way. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter. Whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. They were spiritually run amok because of the ego of Jeroboam, running toward just more power, more power, more influence, more land. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. He uses this wicked, because God's grace is amazing. Even this wicked, wicked king, God is using him to help the other people that he leads who've been under oppression. He saved them, the people, by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, all that he did, his might, how he made war, how he recaptured for Israel from Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah. 
And the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, all that he did, his might, how he made war, how he recaptured Israel from Damascus to Hamath, would belong to Judah. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jeroboam rested with his fathers, and then Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. And it's interesting because Zechariah's name literally means remembered by Yahweh. So why do I say Zechariah chased the cow but missed the manure? Well, the gods of Jeroboam set up were the Baal gods, the big cow gods that go all the way back to Moses. And so even though he's increasing power, increasing political land, increasing influence, the whole time it's while he's chasing the gods of the foreign nations and his namesake, Jeroboam I, chasing the cow. And though he grows the place, he sacrifices everything that matters. He doesn't see the manure all around him of not putting God in his place. It's like my dad used to say. He says, Chad, if you're always looking out for number one, you're going to step in number two. <laughs> mm. Isn't that true? You get so focused on something that's not God, and it will require you to sacrifice your hobbies, your family. You'll sacrifice your marriage for the sake of your kids. You put anything in place of God, and you'll end up sacrificing the things you care about. You're so chasing that cow in ego that you don't realize you're standing manure. Can't tell me guys go, yeah, you know, I look back now and I didn't realize it, but I blew up my first marriage. I was just so egotistical and I just didn't even know it. Chasing the cow, missing the manure. That's what ego does. Which brings us to our third king. King Azariah to the south. He also has uh, his ego as his eyes, and we're going to see that he's got some powerful lessons. So when our ego becomes our eyes, we begin to isolate ourselves from God. This is why of all the sins you can be worried about, of all the sins you could say, well, you know what, you know, that's not a big deal. The one sin you should take more seriously than any other sin is ego. God has a list in Proverbs of seven things he hates, and ego makes the list twice a proud heart, and haughty eyes. That's how serious God takes this problem because ego isolates us from God. And Azariah finds that to be true. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, becomes king of Judah. He becomes king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jeholiai of Jerusalem. And he did, oh good, what was right in the sight of the Lord. So far, so good. According to all that his father Amaziah had done. Two good kings. Except the stupid high places. Except the high places were not removed. It's a little more comfortable. I kind of like the fertility God. I worship God on my terms. And so the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places instead of at temple, like God said. So God gave grace, God gave time, but eventually God struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. And he was dwelt in an isolated house. See, ego, I can do whatever I want and think there's no consequences. Leprosy is a condition where your nerve endings don't work anymore. So your skin turns white because you don't have nerve endings. You can actually literally have pieces of your body cut, snap off or be cut off because you don't feel it when it happens. That's what happens with ego. You lose the ability to see things accurately. You lose the ability to sense pain accurately. You're getting isolated from others and isolated from God because you've got your own little world. He becomes isolated 
through his leprosy, judgment from God, and now he's in an isolated house. And Jotham, the king's son, while he's isolated, has to take over the royal house, judging the people all over the land. Now the rest of the books of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Azariah rested with his fathers and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David and Jotham his son reigned in his place. Just to the west of Maui is an island. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, like the Isle of um, Malachi or Malachi Islands. When the 1800s, there was Father Damien had heard that in Hawaii and Maui, they had pushed all the lepers onto this isle. And he felt called by God to go and preach and minister and help the lepers who had been isolated from everybody. And for years, he preached. For years, he tried to baptize. He tried to evangelize. And, and he did some good, but not, not really had a huge response on the isle. Well, as he stayed there year after year, faithfully serving, watching, giving of his life, he contracted leprosy. He stood up on the pulpit one day, and as he began his sermon, he opened up his, his shirt, and he showed his leprosy. And he began the sermon that day by saying, we lepers. He says something happened that day that he preached the same way he had before, but all of a sudden he saw a response. He saw people begin to respond to the message, wanting to get baptized, because he had become one of them. And the God of the Bible is, whether you're Jeroboam rebelling, he still used Jeroboam to try and save the people from oppression. Amaziah, he gave him, Azariah, he gave him many, many years to turn. He eventually faced the consequences. But the message of the Bible is because we have such ego, because we are so proud and arrogant, the God of the universe came to our little isle where we isolate ourselves from him, said we knew better than him, knew how to worship him better than he told us to worship him. God became one of us. He dwelt among us. He took on our affirmities. He took on the leprosy of our ego and pride. Yet without ever sinning himself, he took it upon himself. So he could say to you and I, we lepers, we humans, I know what it's like to be tempted by power. Satan offered me the kingdoms of this world. I've become one of you to let you know your ego is a huge problem. I had to die on the cross because of your ego. It's time to confess. It's time to repent. And let me show you and lead you in the way you should go. In fact, ego is such a, a deep concern of mine. All of my heroes of ministry, and I probably have six of them, maybe seven of them, almost every one of my heroes who have influenced me have shipwrecked their ministry in the last 10 years. And you trace back, there's little, little different symptoms up top, but you really trace it all down it's ego. So don't be jealous, but I'm going to show you a picture of my office. You're going to find out what kind of a Star Wars nerd I am. So this is my office on the right. So that's my treadmill office. You can see I'm always fighting the forces of evil. There's Darth Vader on the right. Constant reminder that evil's always against us. We're, we're speaking against it. Also a reminder that, you know, Darth Vader ultimately was redeemed. So even the darkest of people can be redeemed. So this is my office with all the Star Wars stuff around. But on the left-hand side, I have a poem that I keep there. I've kept it there for 30 years even before I worked here. And this is the poem I keep. It's a constant reminder of me of, of how to stay humble. Here's what it says. The indispensable man. Sometime when you're feeling important, sometime when your ego's in bloom, sometimes when you feel like you're the, you take it for granted that you're the most qualified in the room, 
Sometimes when you feel like you're going would leave an unfillable hole, just follow these simple instructions and see how they humble your soul. Take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in it up to your wrist. Pull it out and the hole that's remaining is a measure of how you'll be missed. You can splash all you want if you enter. You may stir up the water galore, but stop and you'll find that in no time it looks quite the same as before. The moral of this quaint example is to do the best that you can. Be proud of yourself, but remember, there's no indispensable man. Here's my hope for you. I want you to realize that in so many ways, our egos become our eyes. And we begin to see our shackles. We begin to see pottery as our, as our key. We begin to see pottery as our rescuer. So I've shown you like six examples of what happens when ego becomes your eyes. And so my challenge to you this morning is to take it seriously. I want you to lego your ego. Lego your ego. Say, I've got to take this seriously. What is one area that ego is affecting me? And I'll give you a test. How do you lego your ego? Two examples. Is it hard for you to apologize? Humble people never find it hard to apologize. Proud people find it excruciating. And if Jesus really died for you because you're a sinner, then probably you sin. And maybe when your spouse brings something up or your boss brings something up, your kids bring something up, maybe that's one of those things that Jesus already died for. So perhaps you might want to think about Seeing if what they're bringing up might be something that Jesus died for. How easy is it for you to apologize? And number two, when you have a conversation with your parents, with your kids, with your boss, do you see it through this lens? I might be wrong. Humble people come to every conversation with at least the assumption that they might be wrong. Because there's a chance that my selfish, unkind, broken heart that Jesus died for might be showing itself in this area. Let go your ego. Ask yourself, God, why is it so hard for me to apologize? Well, if I can't apologize, it's no wonder I'm not hearing feedback. It's no wonder I'm setting up my own destruction. I don't have access to the truth. And next time you're in a debate, and you've had the same fight you've always had, the same old way you've always had it, ask yourself, is it possible that I might be wrong here, even in some small way that I could own? See, there's a religious version of, of ego that says, hey, I do good things, I'm obedient, look at all the laws I've obeyed for you, God, I didn't murder the, the father's kids just like you said. And so, God, I'm entitled to comfort. God, you owe me because of how hard I've worked. That's ego. That's the religious version of it. The rebellious version of it is, God, I don't need you. You're a crutch. That's for weak people. I know better how to run my life than you do. Ego. When you understand the grace of God, that he died for your ego because it's that big, but whatever you find that you did wrong, he's already forgiven you for. It takes away the shame. It takes away the sting so you can own your junk. See, when Jesus died, he said, it is finished. I paid for everything. So let go your ego. I paid for it. To confess means to agree with God that it was wrong. That's the power 
of Christianity. It is finished. Now, Buddha, when he died, you know what his last words were? Never cease striving. And there's a difference between religion, never cease striving. It's never enough. You should have done more. Got to keep trying. And Jesus, it is finished. Because I became a leper for you, because I died for your ego, you can own it. You can find forgiveness in it. And that's what I want for you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are, uh, <clears throat> we are people who have egos. And Father, we, we see it as a minor problem, not as the problem. We don't see the nails that held you up on that cross came from the sins of ego and pride more than anything else. So Father, humble us. Or rather, Father, we want to humble ourselves before you humble us. Help us to experience your forgiveness and your mercy, but also to trust you that your way is best. In Jesus' name, amen.